This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining me here today. Well, I thought I was going to be talking to Dr. Carol Reynolds about integrating subjects, and we did. And then we talked about 50 million other things as well, because that's the way a conversation goes with a person who is passionate about what they do. And that certainly is Professor Carol. She is extremely passionate. We cover a lot of great topics in this interview, and it was a lot of fun to record. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun for you guys to listen to as well. So sit back. Hold on to your seat and get ready to discover a little passion about the humanities. Professor Carol Reynolds is a champion for art education with a specialty in the study of Imperial Russia. She has a passion for music, history, art, and culture and spent more than 20 years teaching music history at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. She shares her love for the humanities by leading art tours to a wide variety of international locations. Her website, ProfessorCarol.com, is loaded with resources for families looking to dive into a deeper and more integrated study of the arts, including courses for middle and high school students, podcasts, webinars, and so much more. She joins us today to discuss her integrated approach to these beautiful subjects and what that approach might look like in a morning time. Professor Carol, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, let's start off by talking a little bit about the arts. Why do the arts play such a central role in human experience? Well, we are defined by many things in our role here on this earth, but one of them is our creativity and our joy, our energy, the very thing that gets all of us all over the globe up every morning, you know, some of that is, uh, is hard to describe in terms of an artistic explanation. But really, we are, if at all possible, very creative and expressive beings. And we see that most of all in our children. We see the joy that they have inherently in anything that remotely resembles creativity. Yeah, whether it's singing or dancing or drawing or making up funny animal noises or seeing the beauty of something that someone else has created. They just, they go to it like a duck to water. And we as adults sort of lose a lot of that confidence in that side of our being. But we were created that way, divinely created that way. And unfortunately, we're living in a time where that has been, as you know, deeply minimalized by so many factors that it it seems now to be something that sits on the side as a convenience when you need it. I agree. And that whole convenience when you need it, it's almost like it's become an afterthought as opposed to something that is absolutely central to who we are as a people. And, you know, having the importance, I think it deserves to our ability to express ourselves and communicate and live fully. I couldn't agree more. You've said it all right there. And, you know, the thing what We often talk, I mean, everyone who's involved with your audience is dedicated to bringing out the absolute best qualities in each child and in the entire family's life. There's no no question about that. We often forget that among the values that we try to teach, and sometimes people call it the three transcendentals, goodness, truth, 
And the third, and this has been there for millennia, is beauty. And we often forget that it is just as important to try to teach as the things we teach in the way of, say, honesty and duty. And I mean, all of these things that we know are cornerstones of the life of our children as they develop. We're not always sure that beauty is in there as one of those three sister values. And yet it is. Okay, so that's very interesting because, you know, this is one of the things that I think 99.9% of my audience would tell you is that they're worried about kind of the right and moral upbringing of their child. But what you're saying here is that we also need to worry about their appreciation and response to beauty that's just as important as the truth and the goodness that we might be trying to instill in them. Well, that has been a cornerstone of Western culture, really, truly going back to the ancients. It's certainly biblical as well. And yet it's not something that you sit around and say, okay, here's my notebook. I've got my goodness section and now here's my truth section. And oh, I better put a beauty section in. But in a way, that's also kind of an interesting moral exercise to think about. And we had to think about what is beauty and what is beauty in our time as opposed to other times. In fact, saying that leads me to one of the most exciting things about studying the arts is that when we study the arts, we get a window into what was considered both beautiful and dynamic in past eras. And of course, those standards of beauty definitely change or we'd all be wearing powdered wigs and have collars of lace around our necks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But still part of a thing that you could say the arts is incredibly useful for, if we're going to talk utilitarian, which I, I try not too much to do, but you know, we're, everybody out there is an educating family member. So we need to think of utilitarian's purposes too. But the arts allow you to open up history. Well, every discipline every discipline, but let's just take history. They allow you to open up history, historical studies in a way that almost nothing else can. I mean, I'm going to stand by that assertion because through people's conceptions of what was beauty and what was expression, again, whether it's painting, dance, theater, music, uh, what we might call crafts or you know, utilitarian arts like embroidery and of tapestry and wrought ironwork and culinary arts, terribly important, fashion. You know, that's all part of this frame of the arts. It's not just something you do at dance lessons, you know, it's all part of one whole. And as we look at it historically and see how it has changed, we are studying history on such a vivid plane that it is really difficult even to forget. And of course, we always like to think what we teach could be remembered, right? Mm -hmm. It brings a kind of a tunes up the volume on everything or it opens the doors and, and floods the light on virtually any discipline. At least that's what I have found in my life. Okay, well, this was one of the things I really wanted to touch upon with you today is that, and this was a message I got this past spring as I was at uh, some of the homeschool conventions, is that one of the things we need to stop doing is fragmenting our subjects out and separating them and isolating them into these little boxes in our students' brains, especially, and saying, okay, now you're going to sit here and you're going to do history, and now you're going to sit here and you're going to do science, and now you're going to sit here and you're going to do art. But instead, that it's much better, or now you're going to say you're going to do literature, but it's much better to teach all of these things as an integrated whole and see, you know, God's role as the creator of all of these things, but also how all of these things connect and tie together. So can you talk to us a little bit about why that's important to teach things in that way? Well, you've just said it. <laughs> I love how you said it. This is great because, you know, not It's hard to assert what you just said, and you've come to that understanding over a lot of time dealing with an awful lot of people. 
And of course, some things obviously do have to be fragmented. You have to say, you know, Daniel, this worksheet, you know, that has to be done in your multiplication has sat here for three days. And by golly, Ned, we're doing it. You know, that's a fact. That's just that's just like getting the laundry done or, you know, feeding the, the cat or whatever. Things have to be sometimes isolated. But this goal of showing that our human experience is integrated and as you say, has been the foundations for this have been laid by God. There's the integration of our highest natures. If we learn to see them, if we learn to identify them, if we trust the process of understanding them, which, but that scares the bejeebers out of people. That sounds like some kind of a graduate seminar in aesthetics. How do you make that day-to-day, as you say? How do you approach that in a day-to-day life? And most parents, particularly now, I think it's fair to say, did not get a strong arts background. And maybe we can take a minute to talk about the differences between to where we are now with that and where it used to be, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Let's kind of take this little journey of where we might be coming from and then how we can turn it around into some of these day-to-day practices where we can start turning the tide on this and integrating these subjects again. So what are the differences? What was it between what it is now and what it was like? Well, again, you know, certainly part of it, obviously, that's a big picture. But, you know, there was a time when education meant a very specific kind of education. It was for very few people, which obviously we're glad that that's not true any longer. And if education is widely available, that's huge in our culture. But there was a time when what we call liberal arts education was education and it was an integrated education. And it put it was based in traditional Western culture on what some people like to call classical education today, which is a strong movement now, which I think is one of the many exciting, strong movements in the home education world. I mean, I tell people all the time and believe me, I'm in a crowd virtually most of the time where people don't know anything about this. The travels that I do, the work I do for the Smithsonian as a study leader and a speaker, I'm out all over the place, literally all over the globe. And people don't know about what's going on in American education through the whole homeschooling movement and how it's influencing so many even public education policies. So I love to tell them that. And I love to tell the story, as they say. But backing up again, there was a time when things were taught so that you were teaching the ability to learn on the level, some people call it the trivium, you know, where you learned kind of stages of learning or however you wish to start interpreting that, but where you you would accumulate the basic understanding and then you would begin to do comparisons and sortings and a sort of a logical or dialectic approach. And then there would be the idea that the child at a certain point here and there, all through integrated, however you look at it, would be able to present this material and then be ready to step into a more sophisticated which in the ancient times was called the quadrivium, a sophisticated set of learning opportunities, if you will, a chance to go on to a higher level. And in that quadrivium, if you look back at the ancient scheme of learning with the Greeks, was music. You know, that was one of the four cornerstones along with uh, mathematics, right, with arithmetic and geometry and astronomy was music. And that puzzles people. They say, what's music doing in there? Why isn't it something else? Well, we won't take that whole topic on But we have to remember people understood music as a mathematical skill as much as they did as an artistic skill. And it is. Music is math. You've heard that before. And a lot of people say math is music. It was a very different world. It's a very different type of approaching education. But what it tended to produce through our founding fathers, through the you go back and look at European royalty, who would be sometimes quite well educated in a different world, of course. But nonetheless, it produced a really high-functioning, at times very high-functioning person with capacities to learn what needed to be learned. 
I know that sounds a little idealized, but let's just stick with that for the moment. If you have a child who can assess, can accumulate, can integrate, and can present and then step forth into a higher level on any topic, that is an educated person. Is that okay to to lay that as a groundwork? Sure. Now, you know, let's get back to, let's move up to more modern times. I'm a child of the 50s, Roanoke, Virginia, a mountain city, a railroad city. I never went anywhere. I never saw anything growing up but the backyard, pretty much. Okay. But I still got a very good education in the public schools there because we had, by uh, as I remember it very vividly, every week, three times I think it was a week, the lady, the, the song lady came, you know, with, and every room had a piano in it. Can you imagine that now? And teachers could play and out came the songbooks and then we had the art and then we had the folk dancing and then we had the school play and everybody was in it. And it all maybe sounds a little quaint now. That's not what most sixth graders are experiencing now, right? No. Uh-uh. But every day you knew you had that component. And of course, you look forward to that because it was, um, it was usually quite fun. And it also was such a sort of a relief to the soul, if you would put it together like that. But we came out with a pretty good understanding, considering where I was, the socioeconomic level of my education, which was not terribly high at that point. But nonetheless, I had an idea that all that was important and that if we had May Day and we had the May Pole, we had the May songs and there was a folk dance that went into it. And then we looked at May Day as a political, you know, that we understood that it meant something else elsewhere in the world because May 1st is an important date historically. If you start taking European history and, you know, somehow it all swirled together more or less. So I feel that even with my limits, I got a very good start in life. And then I got Latin early, not because I was in some fancy academy, but because it was understood back then that if a kid were really and truly college bound, they couldn't do it before seventh grade, but you better get in at seventh grade. Well, again, we're in a very different world now with public education, which is why, of course, so many families have taken a different route, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is a different world where education is job training. Education is you know, I mean, let's just think of this. Your English majors are supposed to be reading literature and the rest of us are reading rules and regulations, right? <laughs> if you follow that kind of logic, the talent kids do music, but everybody else, you know, just put your music on your iPod, right? And we fragmented ourselves. And if it's not functional, it's not going to be for in the forefront for public educators. It's not. Even if they want it to be, it can't be, Right. And if we can't prove its utilitarian purpose, it's not going to be in there. And, and it, it's, it's just a sad, sad state of affairs. And it leads so many people to minimalize the arts, you know. Well, and you've kind of touched on my next question. So, you know, you were saying that the arts kids kind of get to go into the arts and the only the literature kids, only the English majors get to read the literature and everybody else is kind of reading the you know, the instruction sheet. But there is an importance of art for even those who, you know, STEM is like the biggest thing these days. But even those kids who are going into those STEM fields, they really do need to experience the art. So why would art be important for someone who might be going into engineering or a more technical field? Well, I'll give you two scenarios. One is we, up into a certain age, there's not a parent out there who, or not an educator out there who will Usually, let's just whenever you say that, you're in trouble, but I'll just stay in trouble. I'm always in trouble, right? (laughs) But when you look at a preschool, right, one of the most important tools for learning is the arts, right? Whether it's finger painting, 
and gluing who knows what together to be whatever kind of rabbit it is today, whether it's the songs. Think of how much is learned through songs if they are properly employed. Vocabulary, the syntax of a language, the rhythm of the language, expression, human lessons, proverbs. I mean, we could fill 10 pages with what you learn through the traditionally solid children's songs, whether secular or sacred. You know, you learn something from London Bridge. You learn something from every hymn text that you teach a child. That is solid learning, and it's done through music. You can memorize so much more if you sing it. You can express so much more if you sing it on and on. Everybody kind of knows that, and you dance this to understand it, and you sculpt that to understand it. Everybody seems to be on board with that until they get to be about age what? Fourth grade, fifth grade, mm-hmm. sixth grade. And then now we got to do important things. Now, you've just tossed out something that you have agreed, more or less, is the kind of one of the things that puts learning into fifth gear, right? And now we've got to do important things. Oh, okay, let's go do some important things because we've got to grow up now and be able to do something, right? We've just tossed out our best fuel, really. And then, you know, I'm just trying to think where to go with this because I could go so many directions. The science world, let me just say this, the scientific world is supporting this now increasingly. You know, there's one of my favorite books, and some of your parents might really enjoy this. If You know, it's, it's short. You don't have to read it all. It's one of those books you grab in the airport when you're on the, you know, that is overpriced and short, and you, but you kind of had to have something to read on the plane, if you will. But you can get one cent copies of it used, and it's in libraries. It's by Daniel Pink, P-I-N-K, Daniel Pink, a Harvard MBA think tank guy who's written a bejeeber billion of these successful business books. But he was Mr. Business, right? Mr. Business and business publishing guy all the methodology that you need for um, to be a high-powered business guy, right? But he wrote this book called A Whole New Mind. And then the subtitle is Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. Came out in 2006, and it's everywhere to be found, okay? A Whole New Mind. And basically what he did is he woke up one day and said, you know, I'm Mr. Science, Mr. Math, Mr. This, Mr. Left Brain Skills, Mr. Success, Mr. Think Tank. And I probably can't draw a circle. You know, I mean, I don't know anything about that part of me over my years of concentrating on these other aspects of life. So he goes and he enrolls in an art class. That's, and I want to say any more because anybody would enjoy this book. I don't want to spoil it. And he does it not out of personal curiosity only, but he does it because he also understands something about the business future of this country and of the Western world, which is the jobs that we think are technological. We think we're a technological culture you know, that we went through the industrial revolution, you know, and now we had the technological revolution and that's the future. He says, "Uh uh-uh, that's gone. That's over. Those jobs have moved overseas. The people who are building that world now are not in Iowa and Michigan and North Carolina. I mean, certainly some things, of course, but the basic, that basic future has moved overseas. I think we kind of all know that when we're on customer service hold, right? (laughs) He said, what we are now in is the conceptual age. And he said, this is where the exciting future is, the conceptual age. And what is that? And he talks about that in the middle, you know, after he's put you in that first art class, which is quite interesting to read about. And he then goes in explaining the conceptual age is where we're going to be using the qualities that define what science knows are right brain qualities, okay? And that's empathy and creativity, right? Flexibility, cultural awareness, the subtleties, all of those things that are part of the artistic side of our nature, the artistic 50% of who we are, if you will. And he said, this is where we have a future. And if we do not train our children 
we will lose those jobs as well. I mean, I didn't mean to go off on Daniel Pink's thesis. It's wonderful. I find it a very helpful book because people need to be convinced that I'm not just, oh, she likes symphony orchestras. So of course she's saying it's important. The scientists are saying it's important. They can put those little EKG things on the brain and really see what happens now, right? When a child hears music, not to mention tries to make a sounding note on a violin. What happens to all those little brain waves? You know, how it ramps up and how when we dance, what happens to our cognitive abilities? They know that now scientifically. And it's very, very helpful, I think, for those of us struggling to help get this message of the arts out. So I'm sitting here now and I have a child who's going to be entering, quote unquote, sixth grade this fall. And I have another one who's going to be going into, quote unquote, fourth grade this fall. And so basically what I hear you telling me is that as we move forward and start doing these important things, we also need to make sure there's still time for the arts in our day. It's not that you're telling me to continue the kind of preschooly things that I did with them where we're maybe pasting things onto paper, but that we need to start exploring if we haven't been already. And we have. But, you know, these classical music pieces and the hymns and you were talking about the folk dance and chalk pastels and all of these artistic endeavors that we have available to us, we do need to be doing them and not pushing them aside for learning to write a better paragraph or finishing the long division or something of that nature. Well, and they don't have to be fragmentized, as I know you know. Is that a verb? If it isn't, I just <laughs> made it. As you well. just made it. So well, sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? I, yes. I'm just going to say a hearty yes. And then the question, of course, is how do, do you do it? And of course, people say, wait a minute. I have absolutely no talent. I have no background. I can't afford all those lessons. Maybe I can afford it, but I don't even need to drive the kids because I have the little kids. There's 80 reasons. So first of all, let me tell you, I'm not talking about how everybody needs piano lessons, although a little bit of piano or instrument study is a wonderful thing. And, you know, you hear adults all the time say, I had six months of piano as a kid. Boy, I wish I had more. But you Mm -hmm. know what? That six months was really important to me. I mean, you hear that kind. So if you can do something organized, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter, you know, if you end up on the, you know, and in the, in the New York City Ballet, you're not headed there. You know, you, you don't necessarily even want to consider a life that difficult that a professional dancer has, which is one of the most difficult lives there could ever be. But the idea, if you have an ability to get into some kind of structured lessons, that's good. But it is not essential. And it is not really the goal, which is to make the opportunities for your child, your children, your family to be arts appreciative, beauty appreciative, arts aware and understanding historically. And I kind of want to go in two directions. Can I backtrack a minute? I'm, I'm sure. misrapping path. Let's look at what we do with sports in this country. And I love sports, by the way. I love baseball. I grew up, you know, watching. I mean, when I was first at SMU, Michael, well, I'm sorry, when I was first a graduate student, Michael Jordan was a freshman okay, at, at University of North Carolina. I mean, do you think I learned about bas- basketball? You better believe I learned about basketball. You know, I love sports. All right. I'm terrible at them, but I love them. But look what we do as a culture. We say that it's good for almost every child to have some experience in some kind of sport. Is that not true? You know, even if it's one semester that they go out for something. And we take them to some sports. We want and we teach a lot of vocabulary, right? We teach all we want them to know the rules of baseball. We want them to understand how tennis works. We watch it at times and teach, you know, it it we don't say to every child, you're going to be a professional sportsman, correct? Or you have to do this for eight years. Or we find ways for them to be active as a culture because we value sports in our culture today hugely. Would you agree with that? Yes. 
hugely. And, and we don't see that as taking away from anything. We don't see that as, as hard. You know, I mean, it's just something that as a culture, we think is helpful for their development, helpful for teamwork and sportsmanship and learning how to deal in relationships and good for their physical health and good for the enough said, right? Compare that with how we look at the arts as this kind of unattainable, difficult, hard to figure out how to do thing. I mean, I think that contrast is an interesting one to draw. And I think when parents lay that out for themselves, they can use what we do culturally about sports to help inform them how they might more easily and naturally approach tackling something about the arts. And to go to the other side of it, the resources now are everywhere, even if you live in the utter boonies. So much marvelous stuff is available online. There's a lot of garbage, as we know, but there's so much available online that it's staggering. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you don't want them glued to the computer all the time. But you see, if you're doing some kind, let's say you're studying, I don't know, you're studying uh, Louis XIV, right? You're trying to do French history, right? The way you do French history is through the arts. Okay, you need some battles. You need a few things. But boy, you want to tell the story of the 17th, 18th, 19th century French culture. You do it through the arts because by golly, Ned, that's what they valued. Look at Louis XIV. What was valued at Versailles? In our course, Discovering Music, we do a whole unit. Uh, unit four is on Versailles because the entire concept of the, of the monarchy in modern European history, you know, through the 18th and 19th century until World War I, was built on the same model that Louis XIV put together. It wasn't completely new. The medieval kings had it. The ancients had it. He put the system, it's like setting up a sports system in a college would have been, right? You know, he set up a system of the arts that defined his kingdom. And his number one art was court dance, which was drilled almost excruciatingly by his courtiers under force, by the way. And the arts of music and of painting, you know, his first institutions, and they were called academies, were Many of them were dedicated to the arts. The money went to the arts, the grandeur. And again, I'm including everything, chandeliers, parquet floors, fashion, all of it integrated as a gesture, as a symbol of power. And so it's just, it's not something we have to reach out and pay lessons for to find examples of. Boy, that was really a long sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to stop for a minute, okay? I get a little wound up about this. So what do I do as a homeschool mom? And I'm sitting here and I have these, you know, moving into the preteen years and the resources that I'm finding for myself are these basically segmented resources. So what can I do to help pull these together and foster this understanding of the arts and use the arts in order to tie some of these subjects together? Well, of course, depending on the age, I'm going to say one thing is that if your students' ages are appropriate, which for us is middle school, high school, some upper elementary, you know, we have certain resources that we've created just for this reason. That's one thing. We can talk maybe about that in a minute, too. But I think the most important thing is a spirit of inquiry, because you can be in any room, any place, and you can start, let's go back to beauty. You can start inquiring or asking your kids to inquire about what they see, feel, and hear around them. And if you're at the Sonic drive-in or if you're at a, in the dentist's office, you know, there either is beauty or a lack of beauty. There either is blessed stillness or there is racket going on over the loudspeakers that's passing itself off as music. There either is an object of beauty in the room, some kind of 
maybe it's ugly or maybe it's not ugly, a flower arrangement, or there is a cool looking stripe down the carpet, or there is an interesting design on the above the door jam, or there is something we're not used to looking. We, we do this with nature studies fantastically, right? We teach our kids to see every leaf, every bug, but we forget from a very early age to also start asking them to hear the soundscape, which could be the dump truck, but it could also be the sound of a violin of a child practicing out the window, less and less of that these days, but sometimes still becoming aware of the soundscape, becoming aware of the color schemes, the textures, the materials. You don't have to buy a thing or do a thing to ask those questions. Now that may feel silly at first, but these are skills. Because what we're really looking at for is building appreciative adults, right? So that's one thing. Does that make any sense at all to you? It does. And I think where a lot of parents might feel caught up in this or feel like they're not feeling comfortable with the process is how do they know they're not the person standing in front of the waterfall saying it's pretty? You know, how do they know that they're feeling the right thing or saying the right thing? Because maybe I like the racket on the radio. So how do I know that I'm okay, passing so the racket, racket on the radio? So let's talk about what the racket on the radio functions as. And is it the same thing as the music you listen to, Martin, on your iPad or on your whatever? I don't know what anybody listens to anything on anymore. I'm sure it's not a phonograph. Is it the same thing as the music that Aunt Mary Lou loves to sing when she goes to the Sunday night church things? Is it the same? What is music? I mean, just even asking that question is a pretty important thing. There isn't a right or wrong in the arts. There are different messages. There are different media. Yes. And most people standing in front of a big waterfall are not going to call it pretty. They're going to call it terrifying. You know, Uh, (laughs) so, you know, let's say you're standing in front of that waterfall and you have the opportunity to do a family trip. What that opens up, of course, is every landscape painting. These we can find on Internet now. We don't have to own the big, beautiful, expensive art books anymore or travel to the museums, although that's wonderful, right? What does this sound like in music? What would this... You don't have to know the answers, by the way. You know, questions are what we try to teach with. You know, the kids love the questions. They want to hear their answers. Now, I'm not saying free-form oh, I think this waterfall sounds like peanut butter. Oh, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, again, I'm not trying to advocate that this all becomes just kind of an exercise in hilarity. I'm not. But we are being touched visually, orally, tactily every moment of our lives. And we shut most of that out. So I do think that parents worry too much about whether they're putting the right music. It's got to be Mozart for babies or is it supposed to be Haydn? Is it Bach for baby? How much Bach should this baby have? Or should it mostly be Mozart? What is all that about? Mozart was just a composer, you know, who struggled to make a living and did a pretty bad job of it in most cases, you know, who the canon of Western culture, I think correctly, anointed as possibly the greatest composer ever. Lots of people will disagree with that. But that's how did Mozart, you know, there's another conversation. Beethoven. Oh, yeah, I know Beethoven. Well, why do you know Beethoven? We do a little free a mini course that's called uh, Seven Days to Beethoven. And one of the things I try to do is, is say, you know, why does any people who don't know a note of music hardly in terms of class, so-called classical music, why do they still know the name of Beethoven? How did that happen? This one guy who was also kind of a, a mess in his own, you know, ability to function in his career. How does he become the great icon? That doesn't happen overnight. That happens through history. And that happens because of very specific historical and cultural reasons. And no, the parent doesn't know that yet. That's why you do need to use some of the resources that are out there. Someone like me spent a lifetime gathering that together. 
But you see what I'm saying, that it's not this menu that if you just pick the right things, you get the right qualities and then you get the right stuff and then we'll all be okay. Bad art can teach you as much as so-called good art, you know? People say, well, I'm going to have to look at a lot of ugly art. Okay, good. Let's figure out why it's ugly. A lot of it's ugly because it was painted in the decades leading up to World War I, you know, when the world was turning fairly ugly. And I think we can relate to that today, can't we? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm touching an awful lot of subjects, but again, it's hard for me not to see this as such a whole. And I know how frightened parents are of doing this. I don't know if what I'm saying is reassuring or if it's going to run them off the other direction. (laughs) Okay, but what I think I hear you saying is that by having these conversations with our children about the things that are even just around us, so not special records that we go out and buy or CDs or downloads (laughs) or not even finding special art prints, but just about the things that are around us in the doctor's office and in other places, we start tuning their eye and their ear toward discernment about what is around them. You just picked the noun I couldn't get myself to come up with. Thank you so much. Discernment. That is one of the major goals, spiritual, moral, and artistic discernment of education, is it not? Discernment. And they are very discerning until we teach them to stop being discerning as a culture, you know? Right, right. And so we're kind of honing that little skill of bringing that back saying, okay, now why is this, you know, why do you like this? Why is this good? Why is this beautiful? And just even in the things around them. And so just like nature study teaches you observation, this kind of artistic study that you're talking about now, and we use the term artistic appreciation, but this kind of artistic study that you would be talking about in the world around us is bringing, honing our skills of discernment. Beautifully said. See, you get to that in just a a nice amount of words and I go and go. (laughs) But So what you've just said is perfect because, again, we're dealing with a parent not confident, but so what? All right. You do a lot of other things you're not confident about when you have children, don't you? Yes. (laughs) And that doesn't stop you. You're not confident about virtually anything when you bring them home. And if, if you understand there's not a right, you know, I don't care how much Mozart your baby hears. It's fine. It's also fine if they hear Appalachian ballads. It's also hot, fine if you put on Verdi opera arias. It's also fine if you put on, you know, Fanny Crosby hymns. But the main thing is that you sing to them and they hear singing. And in our world, that's much harder than when I grew up. When I grew up, there wasn't probably a person on our street who didn't either play the guitar, play the banjo, play a pump organ, sing in the choir, play the trumpet, not because we were fancy, because we weren't fancy. You see, it's much harder for kids to see somebody whittle. It's much harder for kids to see somebody doing weaving or knitting or all of these things that, or decorating a cake, really decorating a cake, not just buying a squeeze thing out of the, you know, although I like those squeeze things too, but, you know, or to make, you know, making jello salads, you know, how beautiful jello salads used to be in the fifties. You know, I mean, that was your, that was your credential as a homemaker with your beautiful jello salads. We just put some old jello modes up on the wall. Can you tell that that's on my mind? My mother's, you know. But the point is, the world now seems to say it's got to be slick. It's got to be fancy. It's got to be picked out by specialists. And I'm saying to you, we are constantly hearing, seeing, feeling, touching, and moving. And that is our artistic side. And it is a powerful tool for learning. Yeah. So just thinking about those old domestic arts, they're really lost these days. Yeah. Yeah. I Remember agree. Watching, did you ever watch a relative really iron a shirt, starch and iron a shirt? Really? Like a, a work shirt? Like I had a neighbor who her husband worked for Greyhound Buses. And man, watching her do those shirts, that was an art. Is that as much of an art as dancing on point? It's a different art, okay? 
But children need to understand craft, skill, art are coming out of the same kind of well of passion, if you will. And being aware of it and learning to respect it. And we want our kids to respect that, don't we? You know, you know, that's and to me, the arts, one of the things the arts teach is respect, just as we do with sports, right? We use sports to teach respect for discipline, for teamwork, for cooperation. Yes, the arts offer exactly those same things. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about what you offer at ProfessorCarol.com. For those parents who still may be a little intimidated by the idea of integrating art into their history studies, their literature studies, and things of that nature. So tell me a little bit about what I could do with a middle or high school student and your programs. Okay. Well, I have to tell you, I, I did not homeschool. I'd never heard of such a thing. Uh, homeschooling in my generation meant that a child was hit by a bus and the public school sent a teacher around once a week. Right. That's homeschooling. In our day, I learned of homeschooling really through my own students at SMU, starting about the early 90s, I remember very specifically, and it's not, I need to answer your question, but I'll tell you, I had a violinist who was homeschooled, who was just spectacular. And I could not figure out how, where did this child learn to write? Where did she, a child, she's 20, but you know, to me, still a child, where did she learn to think like this? Where did she learn to integrate her ideas like this? And finally, one day I, I grabbed her and I, after I turned back a paper and I said, where did you, what high school did you go to? And she put her head down kind of, you know, it's early 90s, right? And she said quietly, I was homeschooled and I, had, I couldn't hear her. And I said, you what? What school? And she said, I was homeschooled. And of course, I made the most ridiculous statement in the world. I looked at her, I said, well, you look pretty healthy now. And she cracked <laughs> up laughing as, you know, and then she said, you don't know anything about what this is, do you? And I said, no, I have no idea. And she sat me down and told me how the cow ate the cabbage, basically. And I was astonished. From that point on, I began looking for my homeschooled students and as I got, and I did a lot of work in the summers in Germany with uh, our summer program, which I'd founded in Weimar. So I look forward to having homeschoolers particularly be on this program because they were so interested and so dedicated. You know, they were so much frequently, not always, but frequently better versed than anybody else, right? So I became very interested in the homeschooling. In 2009, I retired in 2006. In 2009, I decided to make a course for any high schooler, but particularly thinking in terms of those clever homeschoolers that I had had at SMU, right? They were my models. They were the kids I was designing this for uh, because I knew they could do it, right? And so we came out with Discovering Music, which is our signature course, which covers the arts. It says Discovering Music, but it's art, literature, drama, everything we could pack in history at the core, obviously, from 1600 to the First World War, 1918 approximately. So that was, and it's on, it's in 17 units with DVD class lectures and audio cassettes and a text, or it's all available in an online streamed format. And then from then we began doing more because that began to work. And we thought, well, let's do some more. People asked us for an American music course. So we actually have done two of those on American art, history, literature, architecture, et cetera, everything we can cram in. And they, both of those cover from the pilgrims and the founding of this country to basically the 1950s. And then I did a course on Imperial Russia, which is my specialty, which is a rather beautiful course, I have to say, because it's Russian czars and, you know, all of that crazy wild stuff that we associate in Russian history up till the beginnings of Bolshevism and Lenin. So that's what that one covers. And then we've just come out with a course called Early Sacred Music that goes from Temple Times to 1400. We spent three years on that. And... I tell you, it was worth every minute of it because, it, you know, if you spend enough time on something, you, you can do something, right? And we, in all of our courses, Pam, we've had 
the help of colleagues, former students, people I've taught with and known over the years, some of my own instructors even that I've been gone back to. There's dozens and dozens of people who appear in our courses, explaining, performing, demonstrating, and much of it's filmed on location, partly because of the work I do for the Smithsonian. I get to go to these places. So that's what we're doing is just sort of trying to build these resources and make them as vivid. And, you know, parents say, what do I need to know? I said, well, do you have electricity in your house? Can you turn on the DVD player? And if you can do that, let me do the rest of the work. You know, let me do the work because I've spent my life doing this. And, so that's and then what I say. And then when my student takes one of these courses, they're not just getting a credit in some kind of art. They're, it's credits across the board for a lot of different subjects, a lot of humanities subjects, correct? Absolutely. We have people that use it as a history credit part of their European or completely their European history, humanities, religious studies, of course, fine arts, if you want it, part of other disciplines. I can't tell you how many different ways people use our courses. Everything from an occasional vignette out of a course to their co-op, you know, a totally 20 minutes in length, perhaps, to devoting an entire semester to two or three units out of one of our courses. I mean, I hear we're in public schools, we're in private schools, but I love the different ways that our courses are used because that's the arts, you know? They should be flexible. And I'm grateful that they can be used in a flexible manner. And parents seem to find that it helps. The kids definitely seem to find that. And that's our goal, you know, is we want to be able to help. I know it's intimidating. So I want to take that out of the equation. By integrating them this way, do, you, do the students respond really well to this? They seem to. They sure seem to, based on what I hear. And of course, all ages. I mean, the six-year-old might be watching the 15-year-old doing this unit on uh, 19th century American art and music, you know. Or you might have the sequence in one of our courses that we shot at Mount Vernon where the Miller is actually talking about the soundscape of George Washington's world and how he is the current miller of the reconstructed mill at Mount Vernon has to learn to think in those same terms as the miller would have done in the 18th century. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's not music. Oh, yes, it is. It's the music of a village. You see, it's the music of industry. It's the music of life. If you go back to most of Western history, the mill was the center of a town, right? Or it was critical to life. So, I mean, when you have a, when we, or when we focus on those kinds of integrated approach to the arts, we've got something that visually and really in every, substantially any age child, up, well, not any age, but you know, even a six-year-old can find that interesting. Even though academically, the resources, the text, the questions, the, you know, I mean, I have testing materials, exams, projects, you've got to have all that stuff for the high school credit, of course. But, you know, that part is set at the appropriate age for the high schooler or the middle schooler, but your six-year-old's going to go, oh, that's cool. And that's what we want. Yeah, that's exactly what we want. Well, Professor Carroll, thank you so much for joining us here today and just being so passionate about the arts and the integration of these subjects and how we can kind of bring that discernment back to our students. I really appreciate it. Well, it was my pleasure. And just don't doubt yourself, parents, anytime you point out what is in their in their world and make them think about it. You are engaging them, that right brain, that artistic part of their being, their souls. You are helping them fulfill that and turn it into a very powerful tool. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Pam. And there you have it. Now, if you would like links to any of the books or resources that Professor Carol and I spoke about today, you can find them on the show notes for this episode of Your Morning Basket. Those are at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB26. 
Also in those show notes, we have some helpful directions for you if you would like to leave a rating or review for the Your Morning Basket podcast in iTunes. The ratings and reviews you leave in iTunes help us get the word out about the podcast to new listeners. So we thank you very much for taking the time to do that. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another great interview. And until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day. Bye.